Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of The Fraud Files, a podcast from Herbert Smith Freehills, where we're breaking down everything you need to know about the introduction of the Economic Crime and Corporate Transparency Act, and in particular, the new offence of failure to prevent fraud. My name's Elizabeth Head. I'm an off-counsel in HSF's Corporate Crime and Investigations team in London. And it is my pleasure to bring you a special bonus episode today where we will be taking a break from failure to prevent offence discussions. And we're going to look at some of the other changes that have been made by the Act. Um, The Act was introduced as an omnibus piece of legislation. So it brings together a variety of reforms in other areas besides fraud. And so that's what we're going to be focusing on today before coming back into our um, scheduled programming to break down the failure to prevent events in a bit more detail. I'm delighted to be joined for today's discussion by two excellent panellists who I will let briefly introduce themselves, starting with Susanna Cogman. Hello, everyone. Hi, Liz. Susanna is a partner in the, the CCI team here in London. And we're also joined by Sarah Hawes. Hi, Sarah. Hi Liz, hi everyone. Yes, my name's Sarah Hawes. I'm the Head of Corporate Knowledge here at Herbert Smith Freehills. Um, That doesn't really tell you very much about what I do, but to sum it up in one sentence, I would say my focus is very much on new corporate law and regulation. Thank you very much and plenty of that for us to discuss today. Um, So we will dive straight in um, into the Act and Susanna, can you give us a bit of an overview of the topics we're going to be touching on today? Sure, thank you Liz. Um, So the Uh, Act, apart from failure to prevent fraud and the identification uh, reforms, which we spoke about in our first podcast, um, contains a a variety of other areas um, of uh, legislative change. So the first and probably the most significant and happily the one I don't need to talk about because Sarah is all over this, is uh, Companies House reform. So really significant changes to the role of Companies House and various aspects of corporate law. Um, The second area, which is uh, more my bag, uh, are the amendments to the Proceeds of Crime Act in relation to SAR and uh, DAML reporting and information in relation to information sharing. So those will be relevant to firms in the anti-money laundering regulated sector who make uh, SARS and in particular who um, need to seek appropriate consent, also known as a Defence Against Money Laundering or DAML, uh, from the National Crime uh, Agency. Uh, Those aren't very significant changes in the sense that the overall framework for SAR reporting kind of remains as it was, but there are some important um, differences of of detail which firms will need to be aware of and be able to operationalise um, there were also some changes under uh, the Proceeds of Crime Act poker uh, relating to things like crypto asset uh, confiscation um, and sort of civil recovery powers for law enforcement. So adapting those pre-existing powers to make them more apt to uh, freeze and seize uh, crypto assets. Uh, again, not really relevant to firms from a compliance perspective, but just um, a further kind of things in the toolbox of of law enforcement. Uh, Also in relation to the the law enforcement toolbox uh, side of things, um, we have some changes to the powers of the Serious Fraud Office, um, and those relate principally to its pre-investigative 
power. So this is the circumstances in which it can compel the production of information or documents prior to opening a formal investigation. And it could previously do that in relation to corruption investigations and the circumstances in which it, it can use pre-investigative powers um, have been broadened to also cover other types of fraud investigations. Um, finally, there are some changes particularly relevant to lawyers, um, for example, in relation to the um, Solicitors Regulatory Authority, the SRAs, um, finding powers and um, objectives, uh, and in relation to what are known as, as SLAPs, um, strategic uh, litigation against public participation. So that's a bit of a whistle-stop tour, and as you can see, it's, it's a bit of a, a mixed bag of items, but um, Liz, I'm sure we'll talk about some of those in, in a bit more detail. Thank you very much. Um, I will turn to Sarah first to go into a bit more detail. Um, Susanna mentioned extensive companies' house reforms. So could you talk us through the key changes, please? Of course, Liz, thanks. So look, these fundamental changes to companies' house are all part of this bigger picture package of measures that the government is putting forward to seek to tackle the use of corporate vehicles in the UK for, for crime, for money laundering. Now, in contrast to the changes to corporate criminal liability that you discussed in the previous edition of your podcast, this bag of company law reforms have been very long trailed with a first consultation back in February 2019, three follow-up consultations in 2020, and then the final white paper containing the government's plans for reform published back in February 22. And here we are really talking about the most fundamental changes to Companies House since it was set up in 1844. So look, first, just to be clear, what do I mean by Companies House? Uh, now, as most of you know, Companies House is the registrar of companies for England, Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland. Its head office is over in Cardiff. And to incorporate a company here in the UK, you pay Companies House a fee and you file a set of initial documents and information with them. Then under the Companies Act, you have obligations to keep Companies House updated annually and then on the occurrence of certain events about pieces of key corporate information. It is, though, fair to say that before this second Economic Crime Act, Companies House was effectively, well, um, um, a filing cabinet, a glorified post box. Uh, look, however you want to phrase it, and the government and Companies House themselves have used the phrase from a passive recipient of information. Um, the short point is that at the moment, if you submit information to Companies House, as long as it's been properly delivered, Companies House is obliged to put it on the register and then it is there and available for public consumption for free via the website. Companies House has very little power to apply any scrutiny or check the integrity of any of the information supplied to it. If we're talking here about the ability to stop companies being used to facilitate economic crimes, I'm sure you can see there's an obvious flaw in that plan. So just to take a couple of um, quite simple examples, really, we know that there are hundreds of thousands of individuals who've been registered at Companies House as directors of companies um, after they've died. Or you see the headlines in the press where there's a street with a whole row of houses and hundreds of companies have been registered at each house in the row when the people living there have got absolutely no knowledge of or connection to these companies at all. It's fraudsters abusing the current system 
hence the start of this extensive consultation process back in 2019. So as we've said, this second Economic Crime Act is fundamentally changing the nature of Companies House, our registrar of companies, turning it from that filing cabinet into a, a, a quasi-regulator, really. The result will be that the integrity of the information on the register about UK companies will be significantly enhanced. So look, Liz, I would categorise the changes in four buckets. So let me go through each of those four buckets. The first, as I've intimated, is that the Act will give Companies House sweeping new powers to query the information it receives, particularly where it is inconsistent with information that it already holds. It will also have the power to request further evidence in connection with any filing. And if a company or an individual doesn't reply, well, it will be able to reject that filing. Or if somebody does reply, but the information doesn't stack up, you know, it doesn't feel like it's got to the bottom of it, again, Companies House can reject that filing. This will mean that the information available on Companies House will be more accurate and more reliable. And for those of you who file information with Companies House, it makes it all the more important that filings are made properly, carefully and in good time. The second sort of bucket of changes then is around giving Companies House the ability to remove information from the public register much more swiftly and in a wider set of circumstances than is currently the case, which again will be helpful. For those of you who do deal regularly with Companies House, you'll know that if you file something with them, you know, with an error in it or a mistake in it, there's really nothing you can do unless you want to trot off to court and get a court order to rectify the public register which understandably people very rarely do. So the information just sits there. The best you can do is file a new form with the right information on it, but the old form or the old piece of information is still there and is still visible. So going forwards, companies and their advisors will be able to make requests to Companies House to get that all sorted out and, uh, and tidied up. The third big topic people talk about when they talk about these radical reforms to Companies House alongside its new powers is identity verification. All directors of UK companies, people with significant control, so that's the ultimate beneficial owners of companies up the ownership chain, and anyone who files information on behalf of a company, so that's normally of course the company secretaries, but it you know, could be anyone involved in the business who does those online filings. Going forward, those individuals will have to have their identity verified with or by Companies House before they can continue to file things on a company's behalf at Companies House. Now, you can see, again, this is all about the integrity of the information on the register. It's about knowing who stands behind companies. So uh, what do we mean by verify? Well, they have in mind something similar to the government gateway systems, for any of you who've used that recently. Uh, I mean, I did it myself, actually, in the spring with HMRC. So you, you use your smartphone, you take a picture of your passport, then you take a selfie, you submit them both to the government system, something whizzes and whirs away in the background, and they're compared and, and suitably verified. And it can take, you know, if you're a UK individual, just a matter of minutes or hours. At least that's the ultimate goal. Now, it's fair to say it's going to take Companies House some time to build this system for itself. It's then going to take a significant amount of time for them to implement because it runs through every single one of Companies House's key processes. Now, buried in the Act, there are also hundreds of miscellaneous changes to company administration, which I'm, I'm not going to run through in this podcast for this audience. They're, they're a topic all of themselves. The short point is once those are all implemented, 
which I acknowledge will be painful as part of the process, will actually make running UK companies simpler and smoother. I'll end my summary, though, with the fourth sort of bucket of changes that I do think is relevant to this audience, because it's the thing I think that will really drive those changes in behaviour in terms of how people view and interact with Companies House. And that's new civil sanctions. Now, it is, of course, right to say that there are criminal offences peppered throughout the Companies Act for failure to file things or filing things late or somehow misleading Companies House. It is also right to say, though, that outside the most egregious circumstances, you know, those scandalous corporate collapses, criminal prosecutions are very rarely brought by Companies House by the CPS uh, simply because of the costs and the complexities involved. Once the new powers in the Act come into force, though, Companies House will have the power to issue civil penalties. So, you know, like a, almost like a fixed penalty notice for speeding, that type of thing. And it will be able to do that, therefore, very quickly, easily and cheaply without having to go through a criminal prosecution process. We therefore fully expect that Companies House will start exercising these powers enthusiastically. Uh, so there is a real risk that people will be fined and sanctioned for the breaches of the Companies Act, uh, probably really for the first time since Companies House was formed. This, I think, therefore, is really going to drive the changes in behaviour that the government are looking to see. Companies House are, of course, needing to massively upskill and increase their staff to deliver this. They're recruiting something like 400 new people um, and they are creating for the first time a new dedicated enforcement division. So I think that is how I would summarise the four key buckets of changes, Liz. Thanks very much, Sarah. A huge amount going on um, and picking up, I, I suppose, on the, the point that there's a lot of machinery within Companies House that has to be put into place. When is all of this going to happen? Yeah, so on timing, as people may have gathered by my constant use of the future tense, um, none of this is in force yet. Uh, the Second Economic Crime Act is an act, it is law, sitting there on the shelf, ready to be used. But we still need a, a commencement order or probably a series of commencement orders to bring the relevant provisions into force. So commencement orders are those secondary pieces of legislation uh, that bring particular sections into force on set dates. And we need a series of those to give Companies House all of these new powers I've been talking about. We do expect the first bucket of changes the new powers for Companies House, including their sanctioning powers, to come through in a commencement order to be made, air quotes, uh, early 2024. Um, everything else will then follow later once Companies House has built the relevant systems and made the necessary organisational changes. And so with all of that being still a way away, is there anything that companies should be doing now to prepare? Yeah, I certainly think so. I mean, if you haven't already, uh, anyone who's got kind of co-sec responsibilities really has to have a quick review of the final text of the, the Act itself, just to make sure they're across the detail of everything that's in there. Uh, now, I think would be a really good time if you've got a large group of UK companies to do an audit of those group companies, those limited partnerships. Um, are they all still needed? Do they all still serve a purpose in the group? Are all the internal records and registers up to date and importantly, consistent with what's available on Companies House? Uh, get together a list of all the group's directors, company secretaries, PSEs, anyone who presents information on the company's behalf so that you've got a list of people who'll need to go through that identity 
identity verification process what it wants is, is up and running. Uh, review all internal processes and training around uh, incorporating new companies, appointing new directors, et cetera, just to make sure that all the new steps in the processes are built in. And there's a real emphasis added to proper and timely filings, probably with a cross-reference to the new sanctions. Uh, and finally, uh, make sure you review the relevant timing updates that come out of the Department for Business or out of Companies House, just so that you're on top of what is coming into force and when. Um, on that, Companies House actually have a really good blog that you can subscribe to, and then you get timing updates uh, direct to your inbox. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Sarah. If I can um, come back to Susanna then, um, following all of that really interesting stuff on Companies House. Susanna, could you give us a bit more background on some of the money laundering changes that you mentioned earlier? Sure. So uh, these are the changes I alluded to, to the Proceeds of Crime Act, which are relevant to AML regulated sector firms. Um, some of these build on uh, previous recommendations by the Law Commission, um, and some of these are novel within the uh, within the Act. Um, so the first one is to do with um, exiting and paying away, as it's known. So the scenario here is that we have a firm which is carrying on business in the AML regulated sector. Um, it does an act in the course of that business, which is to do with terminating its business relationship with a customer or client. And in connection with that is transferring or handing over to that customer money or property, which it's holding for the customer. And the total value of that property that it's returning is less than the threshold amount, which has been increased to £1,000 um, for these purposes. So effectively, firm has very small amount of money, less than £1,000 in a customer's account. Um, it can now exit without seeking consent, uh, DAML, um, in order to pay that money away. It'll still need, importantly, to have reported its suspicions, um, but this will uh, effectively by creating a new exemption from the substantive money laundering offences will mean that uh, a DAML is not necessarily required in those circumstances. Um, and that's a provision which has been uh, brought into force already. Um, second one is to do with uh, what's called mixed property transactions. Um, so this is, again, sort of probably most relevant to uh, banks and other sort of deposit-taking institutions. Um, but the concept is that there's a property which is held for a client. Uh, part of that is suspected to be criminal property, uh, but for part of it, that's not the case. Um, and the question is whether the firm has to freeze the entire uh, account in this example, or whether it can simply ring fence so that providing the account doesn't fall below the amount of um, dirty money, um, the account can otherwise continue to be operated uh, normally. So to give an example, account with £100 in it, suspicion regarding £10, uh, effectively what this is trying to achieve is that transactions can continue in the £90 as long as the £10 is being fenced and a damel is sought um, if that is um, sort of used or, or, or paid away. Um, 
That's the concept there. That is due to be brought into effect on the 15th of January uh, 2024. Um, Additional small change, uh, which is also in force at the moment, is a carve out from the failure to report offences, where the information giving rise to a suspicion of money laundering consists of information that was obtained only in consequence of carrying out a status check under Section 14 of the Immigration Act uh, 2014. Um, so if you if those uh, words, are, uh, if that is music to your ears, um, then you know what problem this is trying to solve. Um, if you've never heard of doing an Immigration check Act check before, um, this is probably uh, not directly relevant um, to you. Um, The other change, uh, which again is not yet in force, is um, uh, more of a sort of setting up a prospective framework for what we call post-suspicion private-private information sharing. So this is creating gateways to enable regulated firms to share between themselves information about customers, in particular where they have been exited or had uh, products or services restrictions restricted because of um, financial crime concerns. It doesn't mandate information sharing, um, but it is disapplying obligations of confidentiality and other forms of civil liability, um, other than the requirement to comply with uh, GDPR requirements, where that sort of information sharing occurs. There's going to be, I think, quite a bit more work which is going on in the background to try and Uh, effectively create a framework uh, for that, but the the gate is, um, that the Act rather is providing that kind of initial uh, structure and and gateway uh, to facilitate that sort of activity for obviously the purposes of financial crime prevention. Thank you very much, Susanna. So plenty going on, on on the poker side of things as well. I'm conscious that we have gone through an awful lot of detail today and given you hopefully a taster of lots and lots of different things that are contained within the Act. So for anyone for whom this has sparked a particular interest or it's particularly relevant, um, do check out the show notes where we'll have some links to some extra background reading on some of these topics. But otherwise, it just remains for me to say a big thank you to Sarah and Susanna for joining us. That's been really interesting. Thank you. Thank you to the listeners for joining us um, and we will be delving back into failure to prevent in future episodes. So please do stay tuned and we will speak to you then.